Three, two, one, go. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Scott Melker, thanks so much for coming on The Disruptive Warrior. Thank you, man, for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Why don't you give our, our listeners and viewers just kind of a quick background about what brought you here, what you're up to, and maybe what your day-to-day -day kind of looks like now? Sure. Um, so I, I'm known at this point as a crypto trader and investor. Uh, basically, I advise a number of products, uh, projects and a number of products in the space. But uh, largely, you know, I'm still just a guy who's sitting in front of charts and trading on a daily basis. Um, I've been trading in some capacity or investing for as long as I can remember. I'm, I'm 44 years old, but the first stock I bought was in the late 80s. So uh, it's been quite a, a run. And I went to school actually, uh, right in your background there yeah. uh, at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, where it was you know, effectively impossible not to be exposed, obviously, to markets and, and finance because of the Wharton School and sort of um, a breeding ground for traders and, and Wall Street. Um, uh, but when I left Penn, I actually decided to become a DJ, uh, much to the chagrin of my parents, probably, although they were always very supportive. I passed on Wall Street and I did that for almost 20 years, again, starting sort of right in your backyard there and then moving on to, you know, uh, New York and then traveling internationally uh, with a pretty heavy schedule and sort of transitioned away from that when I got a bit older and had kids. And I've been basically full time trading trading for the last four or five years and in crypto since early 2017. Awesome. Yeah, just an observation after your background. I've noticed a ton of overlap with people who are into like house music or DJs and the crypto market. Do you have any insights to why that may be? Is it the volatility or kind of the highs and peak experiences that come with both territories? I think perhaps some of it is sort of the emotional aspect that you just mentioned, certainly. But I think also, um, you know, people who are creative, uh, also athletes, you know, I know what you're interested in. I should say people who are self-starters and make their own path and don't generally follow the nine to five stable salary path are always looking for opportunities to make money, whether that be, you know, passive side income, uh, whether it be a second job, whether it be the fact that they know that their career, that as they know it is going to end, you know, in their thirties or in their twenties in, in some cases, and that they need something afterwards. I can only speak for myself, but that was certainly part of it. Um, so it's the, you know, it's the appeal to have something that's not necessarily full-time that you can focus on. Um, if you're a DJ and you're DJing at night, you got a lot of time during the day to stare at charts. Um, also, you know, there's a familiarity of, of looking at charts. It's kind of, to me, always been the same as producing music, you know, drawing the lines, the, the shortcuts on the programs are the same as like Ableton, Logic, and Final Cut. But yeah, I think those are people who are just more open-minded and probably are early adopters to, to new things and are looking for other ways to make money. Yeah. You mentioned a little bit about performance and how if you're a DJ, you have all day to prepare or to do other things with your time. Do you see any overlap between maybe like being in a flow state or the rhythm of like a trading day and a performance of as a DJ? I see a lot of uh, so overlap with like an athlete where you you reverse engineer from your game and you work backwards and a lot of the day is building up towards the game. Um, even to add a bit more like in your training, you don't just walk out and train, right? You have a slow build up and you prepare. And then really, if you're training right, the whole point is a long warm up to be at your peak for, I mean, a match is an hour and a half, but there's a huge range of, of actions. Um, so what's kind of your process like to prepare for a day of trading um, or something like that? Yeah. Well, I think that's really important what you just mm -hmm. touched on, because I think that the reason that most traders fail or a lot of them fail is that they don't uh, pay much attention to all of the other things in their life that uh, will make them successful or more importantly, a failure. Uh, you know, I, I don't know that there's that same exact flow state of building and building because the, you know, the trades aren't at a fixed time and you can be a trader at a fixed time, but the market doesn't really care what time your, your, your entry is going to hit or whatever. But I think it's essential to understand the importance of having other regular things that you do that are not trading so that you avoid making those emotional decisions and staring at the chart all day and thinking that you're seeing something that you're not or just feeling that, hey, this is my job. I need to do something, even if there's nothing to do, right. um, which is a big aspect of it. You know, I interviewed recently a very famous trader named Peter Brandt, um, who's been trading for 60 years. Um, 
And he still, at this point, only sets orders when the market is closed and refuses to attach his APIs and trading accounts to his computer during trading hours so that he won't outthink himself and make a mistake. Mm-hmm. After 60 years, that's the level of control he still wants to have to prevent himself from doing something stupid. Right. Um, so I think that, you know, exercising for me, I have ADHD. I have to exercise every day or I lose my mind, you know, um, time with my kids, time where I have to put my phone in another room as hard as it is and not stare at it, especially in the crypto world where you can trade 24 seven, literally mm-hmm. you know, stocks are one thing. It closes, you go about your weekend, you might check the news or something, but in the crypto market, you can burn out so incredibly fast. When you talk about sort of the emotional state uh, versus DJing, I think it's also important to note that you should not have those peaks and valleys in trading. In fact, being an emotional robot and completely detached from your emotions is the key to being successful as a trader. So I would say for a lot of people who are used to the thrill, that's the hardest part actually is to kill that thrill and not get consumed by it when you're trying to trade. You have to be completely emotionless and care so little about losing. The ability to take a loss and move on quickly is the key to all success as a trader in my eyes. And that's very difficult for a, you know, athlete or an artist. I get legitimately pissed off if I like lose at anything else besides trading. Mm-hmm. Fantasy football, if someone beats me, I'm pissed off for like three days. Mm-hmm. You know? uh, or certainly if I'm like playing sports with someone, I'm extremely competitive. I've just learned to eliminate that from my trading. Yeah, man, you touched on so much. How, how do you beat an algorithm then? Um, can you, how do you, assumingly an algorithm is going to be emotionless, right? How do you kind of compete against some of these bigger algorithms in the market? Uh, I think it depends on what you're trading and how you're trading it. I would say mm-hmm. that um, the more you zoom in, the shorter time frames you trade, the harder you try to scalp, you know, as people call it, if you're staring at five minute charts and trying to catch small moves, the algorithms are much more in play. And mm-hmm. that's just not my style of trading. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of like the, uh, the aggressive short board surfer. And I'm the dude like 50 feet out on a 12 foot board trying to catch, you know, catch a really long casual ride. I like to take much larger positions that play out over a much longer time. So it sort of eliminates um, that aspect of it. It doesn't matter if a uh, bot got in three seconds before me for the fill, you know, the high frequency sort of thing. So I think for me, I'm looking to play much larger and longer trends and not be in front of charts. You know, I trade a few minutes a day most of the time, honestly, like Mm. I'll scan charts for 30, 45 minutes, see what I'm looking for, set alarms. And then I just stop looking at them until an area that I'm interested in an alarm goes off and I go revisit it and see if there's a trade to take. So, um, you know, I think the best way to eliminate the algorithms and bots and the bigger players is to just zoom out you know, and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and not force yourself to be always trading all the time. It's just unsustainable. Yeah. How do you evaluate yourself as a trader then? Do you kind of look back at your performance and say, Hey, maybe I didn't get the return I wanted, but what I can, can control in my process, all of that, I was on point. I played the way I wanted to. And yeah. How do you reconcile that with maybe you're not getting the return you want. That sounds like something that would be super difficult to manage because you can only can control your process and that doesn't necessarily always correspond to results in the short term, but ideally over the long term, that that's yeah. the strategy, right? You just touched on so much. So first, I think <laughs> you need to treat trading as a job and most people mm-hmm. don't, right? They treat it sort of like a casino or a, a side project or something, but I don't as much anymore. I'll be honest, I've been doing so long, but I used to journal every single trade, go into a deep analysis of, you know, I enter my entry, my exit, what I was thinking, how I was feeling when I took the trade, how I was feeling when I closed the trade, more importantly, if I traded my plan. But, you know, the first thing you have to figure out what kind of trader you are and what your plan is, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But all of the emotion happens when you should already be detached. You know, you should, when you enter a trade, you should know exactly where, you are invalidated and you want to set your stop loss, you should know exactly where you're going to take profit. And that should effectively not change unless you're moving your stop loss up to minimize your losses because you're in profit. There's no reason to lose everything you've gained because you didn't want to move your stop loss up. But, you know, I think that's the hardest part for people is letting it play out and not staring at it, you know, basically not watching the game. Um, And so for me, 
it comes down to what determines or defines a good or a bad trade, right? For most people, you know, your knee-jerk reaction would be, what's a good trade? Uh, it's where I made money. Mm-hmm. What's a bad trade where I lost money? Couldn't mm-hmm. be less true, right? right? So as you touched on, it's all about process because mm-hmm. you're never going to consistently beat the market over a few trades. You need to be doing the same thing over thousands of trades and, and see your curve rise. So the one thing you can control in a trade is how much you lose, right? So I always tell people uh, when they ask me these questions that every trade I take, I plan my losses and I never concern myself with my win. Mm-hmm. Because the first thing is portfolio control, uh, managing the downside, not losing money and losing as little as possible when you're wrong. Mm-hmm. That's what it's all about, right? I can control that. I know exactly how much I'm going to lose when I set my stop loss and calculate my position size versus the size of my portfolio. So mm-hmm. first, that's why I said earlier, you need to accept losses. You actually act, should actually be planning for them. I'm going to lose on this trade. How do I lose as little as possible? So back to the definition, a good trade is one where your plan is executed. Mm-hmm. So you can lose and it can be a good trade because you lost exactly the amount that you planned. Mm-hmm. A bad trade is one where you change your plan and that can be a winning trade, mm-hmm. right? Because how many times have people in the market lost on a trade and then said, screw it, I'm going back in double. And then it goes up and they make money, which doesn't usually happen, but sometimes it goes up, they make money, they go, I'm a God tier trader, this is how I'm gonna trade for now on, right? And we know where that leads. That leads to bad habits being reinforced and losing money over time, usually not Mm -hmm. very long. It's It's a concept called random reinforcement. It's psychological, but basically in markets, it tends to reward bad behavior and punish good behavior unless you Mm -hmm. zoom out and do it over a long period of time. Right. Is that kind of the thought process on why you focus so much on control? Because if you maintain and get better and better at a specific strategy over a long enough time horizon, you'll optimize for better returns. Is that the thought? It's exactly right. There's, there's going to be peaks, much like looking at a Bitcoin chart or any other chart, it's peaks and valleys, right? If you zoom out on the Dow Jones forever, the great depression, wasn't that big a deal, right? But mm-hmm. if you were in that moment, you probably thought you were going to lose everything and that you were going to be broke. You know, it goes, it makes a high, higher, low, higher, high, higher, low. And it's this rocky path, but it trends up. And that's how you want your portfolio to be as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so for a lot of people psychologically, again, I'm very focused on the psychology of trading, if you haven't noticed, because I, you know, sure. I like to identify my own faults and try to eliminate them. There's this instinct to always compare your present portfolio to whatever it was at its all-time high. So like if your portfolio went up huge last week and you had this monster move and you're up 400% in a month, but then it drops, you know, 10% from there, you're always like, I'm down, I'm getting crushed, right? right? Because mentally you don't have as much as you had at the best moment and you can't approach it. You'll always be depressed, unhappy. You'll always be... um, taking bad trades to try to recoup those gains, you have to zoom out and say, I'm up three times since last month, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like I'm making money, it's going to continue up. So it's very hard to, to do that. But um, I really think it's so important to, to zoom out and really plan those losses and, and know exactly, you know, how much you're going to lose on a trade. Because if you can do that, you will make money over time. The flip side of that, of course, is that when you're in profit, you have to actually let it run all the way to your target and not plant panic and close too early. So you have to lose a little and make more when you're right. Then you can be wrong seven out of 10 times and still make money. Sure. Yeah. I talk touching a lot again. I want to talk about uh, getting your money in good. Like you said, how do you know, is it based on charts or is it based on long-term strategy when it's going up? How do you not pull out and say, Hey, look, I've made so much money. How do you have the conviction to really trust that you're in a good position? You're there at the right time. Do you just remove yourself or do you kind of watch? I, I use charts. You know, yeah. I, I, I like technical analysis but, analysis, but I'm under no illusion that it's a magic eight ball or that it's any sort of, you know, uh, magic uh, time machine into the future that shows me what's going to happen. I, I v- simply view a chart as a vis- visualization of human emotion. Where mm-hmm. are people going to be greedy? Where are people going to be fearful? And how can I take advantage of that? And where are the people who are actually moving these markets going to inflict the most pain mm-hmm. on the smaller people and try to be on their side and not on the other side of it, right? Mm-hmm. So 
to me, a chart just gives me a rational reason to enter a trade, even if it's completely stupid and has no bearing in fact, and there's no science behind it. It gives me a justifiable way to visualize where I can enter, where I'd be wrong, how to lose as little as possible being wrong, and where the upside is. So I can then calculate, at least in my mind, what the risk reward is, right? If I have five times as much upside as I do downside, I'll take that trade all day, you know, and, mm -hmm. I'll, and I will uh, calculate accordingly. But as you said, from there, you have to step back and you have to let it happen because there'll be 10 times before it gets to that target where you think, oh my God, I made it. It's, I'm going to lose it. I got to sell. You know what I mean? And there are a few ways to sort of uh, mitigate that stress. Um, something I'm a huge fan of, which is always scaling in and scaling out. Like it's not a binary decision of buying and selling. So if I'm up 10%, I'll take off some of it off the table. If it goes up 25%, so I have scaled orders to take profit. And so I still have 20% left if it does one of those insane 100X or 50X things. So I still have the benefit of it. I don't feel I missed out because I sold too early, but mm -hmm. I also have mentally have taken profit. I know that I've already, you know, I'm playing with the house's money, which I think is a huge aspect. If you can get your money out, you know, that you've put into a trade and have, you know, exponential upside and no downside at that point, that's a situation you want to be in as a trader. Do you change your risk profile when you're playing with house money? Do you kind of scale up pretty extreme or you just, hey, this is profit? No, because it, it. you know I view it trade to trade, not in general. So if it's the house money, it's on that specific trade because I'm already in profit. So I'm taking, I'm selling, I'm not buying more to, to increase you know the position size or whatever. So yeah, it's an important point. I, I don't view, I mean, my entire portfolio at this point is the house's money, but that mm -hmm. doesn't mean I'm going to take more risk with it because- it's significant. And, you know, I, I, as I said, I mean, I'm just very risk averse and I'm all about what I'm going to lose, not about what I'm going to win. How has that changed over the course of your life? You said you're 44 uh, now, but when you're younger, right, it's the opposite. And I is was that hoarded. healthy, right? Oh, I was a gambler. I mean, yeah. I, until even just a few years ago, um, I was a full on gambler, you know, and uh, you don't feel like you are at the time, but I made every single possible mistake that you can make as a trader. If I lost, I revenge traded. If my stop loss was about to hit, I would convince myself that I was about to sell the bottom. I would move my stop loss down and lose even more. I would refuse to take profit at my target and then watch something that would have been a huge win go all the way back down to a loss and hit my stop loss and then move that stop loss and let it go. I would take position sizes that were way too large for my portfolio, risking 10, 15, 20% in a single trade or in crypto specific, enter 30 trades with proper risk management. But if Bitcoin moves, you lose on all 30 of those altcoin trades and you've lost 30% instead of 1%. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are endless pitfalls and traps, really. And, yeah. and uh, you know, I think that I've just basically gotten to a point where I can manage them, you know? Um, and so it's, it's hard. Even, you know, after all the experience and whatever, there are moments when you want to jump in there and change it up. And sometimes you even do. And sometimes it goes well, but you know, you, really it's all about sticking to that plan. Yeah. What are maybe five key characteristics that you find that maybe differentiate a professional trader like yourself from a, a casual trader? Is it how they set up their life outside of trading or is it maybe some key indicators that they're looking for that maybe your casual trader wouldn't even think to, to measure as a bar of success? I think it's a mixture of both. So first of all, I think, as I've touched on, the emotional control is probably the biggest part of it. You know, not not FOMOing, you know, fear of missing out, um, not buying something when it's already flying because you feel like you're going to miss it, and uh, basically just removing emotions from the equation. Um, another one is, I think, and we've touched on it too, I think as a new trader, especially if you've decided that you're a professional, you do feel that pressure to work 40 hours a week or 80 hours a week or hundred, which is so absurd because the whole point of becoming a professional trader is to not have to have a job. <laughs> right, less time <laughs> you, you working. want money right? and you want free time, right? I mean, that's, that's why you're doing it. So to stare at charts all day, uh, willing something to happen, that's not a, a educational or an active exercise, right? It's something totally mm -hmm. passive that's just uh, giving you more opportunities to lose money, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. So, um, I think a professional trader also has the ability to identify when the market is good and when the market is bad to be able to completely step away for long periods of time if the market conditions are suboptimal. 
right? So if you're like an altcoin trader or something specifically in crypto, there's very few times when trading altcoins is a good idea because your goal is to beat Bitcoin and that's very hard. And if Bitcoin sneezes, you get absolutely destroyed, you know? Mm -hmm. um, it's very hard to sit on your hands and say, I'm not trading today. I might not be trading tomorrow. I might not be trading this month, right? And that happens to me. I won't mm -hmm. trade for a month at a time if the conditions aren't right. You know, like there was, oh my God, 2018 and crypto, it's a disaster, you know? How fast can um, you trade though? Like for example, people who say they invested and then they hit their passcode. And if you did that in 2016, you'd be crushing it right now, right? How do investors you... beat traders. I mean, exactly. there's no yeah. question. And, and mm -hmm. traders work so hard to lose their money. It's incredible. Mm -hmm. Like so mm -hmm. much effort and you could have just bought an index fund or bought Bitcoin. Right. Um, so another thing that professional traders probably understand is that you should be an investor first. Mm -hmm. um, I only trade with 15% of my portfolio. Mm -hmm. It's what I do for a living, mm -hmm. right? So I'm, I know that the market is smarter than me and I'm unlikely to beat it. So basically 70% of my money, I don't touch. I check it like quarterly, you know, and I might make a readjustment. 15% in cash in case there's some epic drop and I want to, you know, re-enter and rebalance. And then I'll trade with 15%. If mm -hmm. conditions are out of control, if you have one of these sort of mythical alt season situations where things are just going crazy, I'll scale that way up. Mm -hmm. But in general, on any average day, I'm about 70% of my portfolio. I don't touch period. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's something I think most amateur traders are trading with their entire portfolio, their entire stack um, because they're gambling. You know, they, mm -hmm. they don't realize that this is like a 50 year marathon and not a, you know, five month sprint. And mm -hmm. if they're not rich in five months, they're pissed off. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I I heard Naval talk about why like why do why do you think traders even exist if investors crush them and like you say traders work so hard to lose their money what is maybe the upside if you're not getting more time you're working very hard and oftentimes it seems out of your control what do you think are some of the main benefits to being a trader? Well, I mean, why do people try to become professional athletes? Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, oh, they love. Do you love doing it or? Uh, yes, to some yeah. degree, but because they believe that they'll be in that 1% that can do it. And I mean, you know, how many, the majority of people who believe they'll be a professional athlete and make a living never do, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't stop people from um, sure. focusing or, you know, dedicating their entire life to a singular pursuit. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think that, you know, the context is probably uh, similar. You know, you mm -hmm. have this dream and listen, I'm not like, I'm not saying that someone who decides to be a trader and thinks you're going to be rich in five months is the same as like an Olympian who's been practicing a thing for, for their entire life. But sure. I think it's the same sort of main mentality. Yeah, everyone loses, but not me. Right, right. I'm going to be the best, you know, yeah. and most people uh, don't get there. They lose too fast or whatever. But if you can stay in the game for a really long time, it can be something that is extremely rewarding and it, and it's, it can be an amazing lifestyle. Mm -hmm. I mean, for me, I can pursue, you know, like I have two kids, you know, I, I have a wife who doesn't like me staring at charts when I'm supposed to be talking to her. I can do those things as a trader, you know, when, and I have friends who have amazing jobs and work their asses off who travel five, six days a week. I couldn't do that. You know what I mean? Not anymore with kids and stuff. So sure. if you can make it work and you have reasonable expectations and you're good at it, it can be an incredible lifestyle where you have a lot of free time. Yeah. It's really hard to have like a budget. <laughs> yeah. How much will we make next month? Oh, zero. I don't know. But you know, right. so, um, you know, I think it's, it's very challenging, but you ask why, People do it because people love to speculate, you know, and, mm -hmm. and people love to believe that they're going to be exceptional at something. And when you're exceptional at trading, it's can be really, really, really amazing. Is it the kind of profession where really similar to professional athletics, most of the gains come to those high tail end performers, right? It doesn't really trickle down. And if you're an average athlete, you're not doing great. But if you're a top 1%, you're crushing it. Is it similar? Uh, yeah, I think that that's absolutely true. And especially if you... So there's Wall Street traders, right, who have a salary mm -hmm. and then they get a, but very heavily weighted towards performance bonus, obviously, mm -hmm. but they have a floor. They know exactly what they're going to make if they perform at a certain level and the market does kind of respectably well, they'll always kind of have a job. Then you have the retail traders, which is kind of everybody else, myself included. You're trading your own money. Maybe you're trading a little bit of someone else's um, and you don't have that floor at all. Right. 
you know, so I think that most people, I think it's an extremely steep curve, sort of, as you're saying, for retail, most people, they say 95% of traders fail, you know, mm -hmm. and they fail fast. It's like broken sure. six months, you know, and no way to even come back in the game. So that's mm -hmm. why it's sort of about just sustaining it. But yes, I think that there's very few people who consistently make a good living trading and they're like unicorns if you're talking about 40, 50, 60 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When would you do traders who, you know, have been successful? Do they set a, a cap? And once they hit that cap, they kind of walk away. Is that maybe everyone in the world sets a cap and then yeah. uh, refuses to actually more walk more. away when they hit that cap, right? Yep. The golden hand, the old golden handcuffs is you scale mm -hmm. your life up to a certain level and then you decide you need to keep working to maintain that level. Mm -hmm. um, I can tell you that for me, you know, I spent years slogging through this crypto market. And in the past few months, it's just been so exceptional that I'm barely trading, mm -hmm. you know, because like the market is good. I'm not going to beat it. I've made, you know, a, a lot of money, a significant amount for me and for, for my lifestyle. And I'm not willing to like necessarily scale up my trading to a level that would be meaningful to my portfolio at this point. So mm -hmm. I think that that's probably how a lot of people sort of slow down is like, if you really make it like, I'm not willing to lose hundreds of thousands of dollars on a single trade. There's plenty of guys on Twitter who are literally throwing these like 10 million positions out there publicly. Some of them are like 20. I right. get it. You know, like yeah. awesome for them. Yeah. But like for me, a certain amount of money still has the same amount of value that it did. You know, like 10 grand is 10 grand to me, no matter what, you know, yeah. and that's just sort of my mentality. Um, has it always so been that or did you get there? Or like you said, when you're younger, it felt like gambling. Did that evolve over time or has that always been your disposition? Yeah, I think, I don't know if it's specific to me, but I think there's just a mental cap to where like you can sustain the pain of a loss and you can't, you mm -hmm. know? And like, I can't be like, oh, I just lost. I'm just not at the level mentally where I could be like, had a Ferrari five minutes ago, don't have a Ferrari now, you know? And right. um, I still see money. And, and honestly, as a trader, it, I don't know if you ever read uh, Doyle Brunson's Super System, famous yeah, yeah. poker player. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, he talks about uh, basically detaching yourself from the money and viewing your chips as units. Yep. Um, I think that that, you know, that is key if you're going to scale up to absolutely huge numbers because you mm -hmm. can't view it as like, oh, I just lost my year's mortgage in five minutes that, you know, you'll never be able to sustain. So I can do that, I think, to a certain point. But then if your portfolio gets big enough, like why work? Like why, you know, I have so many other things I do. I have a podcast, I have my newsletter. I, you know, I'm uh, prolific on Twitter, uh, relentless tweeter, I should say, you know. Um, and, I, you know, I'm just, when you start to say, hey, I'm willing to lose one, two, three percent of my portfolio on a trade, that can become a number that you're not comfortable with, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, no, that's interesting. How, I want to pivot it back into crypto a bit. How... How much do you see an overlap or your path into trading as a natural extension of your career as a DJ or someone who's been creative, as you said, and is following this trend of decentralization, uh, increased tech involvement? Do you see a lot of overlap for me? I don't know sure. that I can accurately define it, but it feels like there's a lot of big uh, trends and mo social movements that are happening in my generation that are kind of culminating. And for some reason, crypto feels like the sovereign encapsulation of a lot of these trends. I think that that's accurate. I don't think I saw that when uh, I made the decision. I was there for the money. I was there to trade it. I was there for these like mythical gains that uh, people were seeing in 2016, 2017. Mm -hmm. But from a purely lifestyle perspective, I was in my late 30s. I mean, I still had a pen degree. I had done a lot of things along the way while DJing, you know, uh, starting companies, failing, succeeding moderately and, you know, million projects but I wasn't going to go get a job. Mm. Like I, I was almost like psychologically and from a resume perspective, unhirable at that mm -hmm. point, you know? So I was always a self-starter. I always wanted to make it on my own. So trading and especially crypto was just a natural pivot from there, right? I mm -hmm. didn't have to go from playing DJ gigs to putting on, uh, you know, business casual and sitting in a cubicle. That, that wasn't really an option for me. Right. So I think that there's a huge aspect of that, which was like, it's a very similar lifestyle. Mm -hmm. trading and DJing. They're completely mm -hmm. different pursuits, but lifestyle-wise, it's it's sort of the same. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that, 
I mean, you look at the world and how it, what's happened in the past four years, specifically in the last year. So like I said, I came for the money. I stayed for the maximalism. You know, mm-hmm. I, I stayed for a belief in what I was trading. You, you trade Bitcoin enough, you trade all this stuff. You can't be immune to why it exists and, and why it's important, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that over the last few years, when you start to dig into, you know, monetary policy and fiscal policy, the behavior of central banks, what our politicians are doing, the way that people are suffering around the world, the role that money plays in that. And as you said, the role of centralized authorities, social media platforms, governments, big corporations. I mean, it's just become so obvious to everyone that none of that is sustainable and none of that is good for the individual. Mm-hmm. And crypto is an escape for that. Mm-hmm. You know, um, And there are people who have legitimately made life-changing money in crypto uh, who would not have had a chance otherwise. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's one side of it. And then there's the other side is that there are places on the on the earth, the United States not being one of them, but if you live in Venezuela or Argentina or Lebanon or Iran or one of these places where mm-hmm. it's literally a better option than your sovereign fiat currency, it's a way to work around a, a broken system that won't serve you and it's literally saving people's lives to be able to use it. So, I mean, that's a very long-winded sort of uh, d- uh, answer to what you said, but yeah, I would say I came for the lifestyle and I stayed for the use case. You know? Is it sovereignty? Is that what you want to max? Like if you could maximize for yeah. individuals, sovereignty, yeah. maximum sovereignty. Uh, that's for for myself and everybody else. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, no, that's probably the most exciting thing for me in Bitcoin. I got in 2017 and similarly, yeah, everybody was making a ton of money. My friends were making a ton of money and I checked it out. And then the more you get involved, the more you get really excited about what a world would look like if everybody had more control, more sovereignty. And ultimately what excites me is that they would be able to do more creative things with their time. Um, not only creative things, but if you lever up all individuals' ability to take bigger and bigger risks, I think you get bigger returns in all sorts of different domains. And that's, that's super exciting to me. I mean, and that, but that, that's an interesting point because that's inevitable in my mind, not that people will mm-hmm. actually do that, but that they're going to have a lot more free time because technology mm-hmm. is an inherently deflationary, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, every time a new technology uh, is created that makes a process more efficient, somebody loses a job. Mm-hmm right? Sometimes by the hundreds of thousands or millions, and that's not a train that's going to be stopped anytime soon. So maybe crypto is one way to protect yourself from the inevitability, um, you know, of losing your job or losing part-time, you know, being a part-time worker. That's not a bad thing, right? If there, if, if there, if there are systems in place to protect people from that, but I mean, yeah, I agree that when people have free time and are motivated, uh, that's where innovation happens. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a good thing. But uh, for a lot of people, I think there's, you know, and it's not what you asked, but I think there's a time coming when they're going to have a lot of free time and a lot less money. <laughs> right. And that's, that doesn't bode well for stability. Have you followed NFTs at all? Non-fungible yeah. tokens for the audience? Uh, yeah. What do you think? Yeah. I, I love it. So, mm-hmm. um, and so obviously there's the art aspect of it, um, mm-hmm. which I find so cool. I actually put out a series of NFTs myself with some of my old music and stuff just to test the waters uh, with this mm-hmm. platform block party. And it was successful and really fun. Um, but I, I think that uh, much like, you know, Bitcoin's value comes from its scarcity. I think, you know, scarcity is important to people having that you're the only one who has that pair of shoes. You're the only one who has that pair of uh, that piece of art or whatever it is. There's something just very human about that urge. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's where value co- comes from. So the ability to actually prove scarcity through NFTs is really, really interesting to me. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people have, you know, they make the argument like it's just a digital file, right? Like, mm-hmm. look, I screenshotted your art. I've got your NFT now. They don't understand that the NFT isn't the art. The NFT is the documentation that proves that you're the only one who holds the original. Exactly. Right? It's the mm-hmm. provenance, like it's the certificate of authenticity and, and ownership. Mm-hmm. So I think that's exceptionally interesting in the art space, of course, but if you think much broader, the implications of that are astounding. Mm-hmm. Like think about 
everywhere that you need a centralized authority to determine ownership or to confirm something transactional and eliminate that middleman who's taking a piece mm-hmm. and who's taking the time in between. And that's what NFTs are to me. Mm-hmm. So your car title, why do I have to call the DMV to get a mm-hmm. copy of my title to send it to somebody else who, that, who then has to give it to their own DMV and all that? Why isn't my car title immediately tokenized and I just send it to you? ERC20, right. you know, uh, uh, an Ethereum chain into your wallet, you have, now have your car title. I had it. No centralized authority. Mortgages, loans, anywhere that there's yep. anywhere that there's escrow, real mm-hmm. estate deeds. Imagine uh-huh. eliminating these three, four, five. I mean, we see it in payments, obviously. Like anyone sure. who's sent a stable coin or a sent Bitcoin and has also tried to send, say, an international wire transaction at any point in their life understands how important this is. But back mm-hmm. up from money and apply that to everything else. Mm-hmm. Anything with a centralized authority, which is- Literally, literally anything yeah. where you need someone in the middle to verify your transaction. Right. Yeah, no, it's, it's coming, it's coming fast and it's exciting to see. Um, how do you feel about social tokens? Like uh, what you talked about- Yachty coins? Yeah, <laughs> well, anything, right? Like I'm really interested in creators being able to capture more of their value, right? Artists, even insanely as, like the top, it's one of those high tail events, right? The top creators drive the games. But if you could capture some of that value with an individual token and scale it all the way down, maybe you don't get just the high tail end where only the elite capture a lot of the games and you can be a small time DJ or small time artist, et cetera. And you could have local people bootstrap you um, with you by purchasing your token. Because as you know, the first people who really validate your work or your creative work are much more valuable than maybe the 10,000th fan, right? The first 10 are hugely important. And I see that yeah. with ICOs or individuals tokens as a super innovation to try to allow that to happen. So my wife is an internet marketer. She runs an internet marketing company. And, mm-hmm. you know, I've, I at least have some experience in the space, especially as a musician and, and, my career trajectory, I would largely um, say was a result of the thinking that you just described. My belief, and I did everything uh, surrounding this idea, was that I needed a thousand fans, mm-hmm. super fans. It's just like you said. So you need, it depends on your own expectation and how big you're trying to get, but you need a thousand people who will consume literally everything that you'll do and you will be successful in life, mm-hmm. in my mm-hmm. opinion. Mm-hmm. A thousand people who will buy every song, who will come to every show that's geographically possible, who will talk about everything you do online, you know, and allow you to go viral. If you have a thousand people that will tweet your song when it comes out, that gives it a chance at virality, you know, all of those things. So I agree a hundred percent with what you're saying. And we've seen that, like, that's why we saw Bandcamp and all of these things in music where you could sell directly. You didn't need a record label anymore. You didn't need the, you didn't need to give up 99% of your earnings to your manager, booking agent, record label. You could just find your fans online and sell something directly to them and sell mm-hmm. a tenth of it and make more money. Mm-hmm. Right. So like selling a thousand records directly to your consumers will make as much money as selling a hundred thousand depending on how shitty your label deal is, right? Exactly. Right, and, right. and we've seen, I mean, there's artists who are bankrupt after three platinum albums, you know, mm-hmm. like TLC was the famous uh, case of that in, 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 the, in the 90s, 2000s. But so, yeah, I think that tokenizing it takes that to a whole other level because mm-hmm. it just makes the transaction. I mean, Dinwiddie did it, right? I mean, we've seen athletes that are tokenizing themselves. We see artists, mm-hmm. those super fans want any way to, get closer to you to experience, you know, be a part of the experience. And like you said, tokenizing, it just makes it, it's not a new idea. Mm -hmm. Offering your fans something special for being your biggest fan is something that people have been doing forever. And certainly in the last 10, 20 years, but being able to do that as a direct transaction with a token is really, really appealing. Yeah, I'm wondering too, like you see Bitcoin really as a, a 21st century technical solution to, to money, how this, how you could incentivize money and in ways for individuals to transact such that it optimizes for 
doing more for others, right? It seems like a lot of the incentives in a capitalist system don't necessarily optimize for the good of a community. And if you were to make some innovations with Bitcoin or tokens, you could really play with those incentives in some creative ways. Have you thought a lot about that as an artist and someone who interacts a lot with fans, how you would change the way you create and how they consume? Uh, I've given it a little thought. I'm a huge fan. Like I, I'm, you know, I, I, I'm very cognizant of the fact that I'm lucky and that there's people who have far less than me. I even like very recently, I think I tweeted yesterday, to, something to the effect of like, my worst problems are probably would be a dream for certain people on this planet, right. you know? Mm -hmm. And basically and, everyone in the US has to accept that. That's just a reality. Right, right? yeah. So um, I give Bitcoin away all the time. Mm -hmm. um, in December, I gave away $100 in Bitcoin every single day to someone randomly, you know, um, awesome. I was letting my, my wife pick. And I'm not, I'm not trying to like puff myself up in any way. I wish there was a better way to do it than that, but like I, I want people to experience receiving Bitcoin. I want them to see the the value increase. I want them to see the importance of it. Hey, listen, it some of it's self serving. It gets mm -hmm. me more fans. More people are engaging with me. They want to win the free money. You know, it yep. it, it goes both ways. But you know, there are interesting use cases for charity, and there are a lot of things that people are starting to do. I just don't think it's quite there yet. But I think mm -hmm. that that will be a huge aspect of of crypto. Mm -hmm. um, I just haven't, you know, as I, I don't really view myself as an artist anymore. So I haven't, you know, it kind of, I was too early for crypto have been impactful on my actual music career, mm -hmm. you know? So now it's more just, I try to find ways to give back, um, as directly as I can, you know, my wife and I have, uh, spoken recently about starting a foundation, uh, we just don't kind of know what it's going to, going to look like yet, but how that becomes an automated part of the process, uh, I don't know yet. Yeah, yeah, I, I can relate to that a little bit as an athlete and then towards the end of my career, it's when you're done, you wanna kind of be done, right? You wanna shut that door and you wanna move on to the next thing and that's your next identity. But what I think is exciting now is the way that the art world and innovations in the business world are kind of colliding. And I think we touched on it, it really seems like they're both optimized for sovereignty and most people realize that's what humans want. They want increased uh, sovereignty. Um, but yeah, I, I guess I'm still interested in finding ways to, whether it's DJing or artists or creatives, how they can leverage tech to do more of what they would otherwise do if they didn't have financial constraints. That's kind of what I spend a lot of time. Are you about. are you familiar with Micah Johnson? Uh, it sounds familiar, but I couldn't tell you what it was. So, yeah. so he's a huge NFT artist now, okay. one of the top three or four in terms of like value of his art, but he was a major league baseball player. Awesome. And, and he spent his entire life pursuing baseball. And when he went to the Dodgers, they said, everybody is like a, as a team building exercise or something, someone choose a hobby. And mm -hmm. he chose, I'm going to go do a painting. He'd never painted mm -hmm. in his life. <laughs> Fast forward like three years. And he's one of the most insane painters you've ever seen in your life. Oh, wow. But the point being, so he's an NFT, he, he paints, but he also is one of the bigger in the NFT space, but his most recent uh, piece that, was very famous. He uh, he draws um, black children as astronauts. Oh, cool. uh, the, the idea being that they can be whatever they they want to be in the world. But it was a, a photograph of an astronaut standing in the door and two children and the two black children who are underprivileged people in his life who he mm -hmm. identified and decided to do this art. And every year on their birthdays. The NFT shows it's like, I can't remember the specifics of the QR code or something, but anyone who like has copies of it and stuff can donate to those children. Awesome. Yeah. For their lives as a built in part of the art, you know, and he's doing that with all of his art. So he has like, I think he's doing something with Apple, uh, you, you know, uh, with uh, Apple TV or something like that. Mm -hmm. But use cases like that, where you sell someone something, but then it has a secondary use case and for the, for the good, I think that that's the best example I can give of what you're sort of asking about. And I think it's just a brilliant way to give back. Yeah, no, it's, it's coming fast in the way that art can be. So it, art is not finite and it's not constrained in that way. And it can really exist in a lot of ways that like an art historian would talk about how it's ethereal and exists beyond the page, things like that. Um, this is a technical, uh, solution for a lot of those things, which is really cool. Um, we have a lot of young uh, athletes, entrepreneurs, people who listen to the podcast. And I'm wondering, we touched on it a bit earlier, 
a trader or an athlete or someone who knows the statistics of what happens and the likelihood of reaching a high level where you can do what you're doing for a job. It's an irrational belief, but similar to what you just explained, you got to a level of success that you're at by following, following things that you're passionate about. And I still believe that I think if you, if you follow things you really love, maybe you don't get the returns as a result of what you're doing, the passions, but you'll end up in a place and you'll be in a state of mind where other opportunities will afford yourself. Has that been your, uh, your experience? And would you recommend that to young people who come to you for advice? Yeah, a hundred percent. And it's mm -hmm. happened for me very much. I think everything has culminated in the last few months mm -hmm. for me. Like, yeah, not right. that I wasn't successful or I didn't whatever, but you hear about this sort of tipping point where it all just falls into place and all of a sudden opportunity is just raining from the sky. That's what it's been like me for me for six months. And it's funny. And then people are like, you're so lucky. Yeah. Like, no, actually it sucked for like 20 years, you know? Right. Um, <laughs> um, but I can say this. So I never had like a parachute uh, backup plan per se. Like I just did music and I made enough and I wasn't worried about it, but I always had a floor. Mm -hmm. I come from a great family. I went to an Ivy League school. I was never at risk of being homeless. You know, if I ever desperately was going to need help, uh, I knew that it would be there. You know what I mean? But I think for most people, if that's not the case, you need to have a backup plan. Sure. As, as passionate as you are about something, learn some other skill or have mm -hmm. some other interest, be passionate about something um, just so that you have something to fall back on. Like I was, I was interested in trading at least. So like it gave me an excuse to quit uh, DJing, I didn't have to necessarily like go grind it out while my, my wife and baby were at home, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and so I made that decision and was able to do so. But my experience is that I had this music career, which built a certain level of following. And it's funny, mm -hmm. those super fans that we talk about kind of came with me to crypto. Right, right, right. Yeah. Like one day I just stopped talking about music on Twitter. I, I had like 40,000 followers on Twitter when I was a musician. It went to 20,000 within like six months of me quitting because I just stopped talking about music and started talking about crypto. And they're probably like, what the hell is this guy doing? Like, what Different is this? Different product nonsense? now, right? Yeah. You know? And then I built a new floor from there and, 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 and things went up. But yeah, I think that so because of my music career, I had an established audience and even just like the credibility of the blue check next to my name on Twitter and it actually being my face and name in a world where people are largely anonymous. So whether deserved or not, instant credibility to some degree when someone has that knee-jerk reaction, looks at your profile for the first time. For whatever mm -hmm. reason, you know, I was able to build with a much higher floor. I, I had a, you know, I was, I was starting at the, a, a three-mile race two miles ahead, you know? Yep. Um, and that's what has led to all the opportunity that I'm seeing now. Yeah. You know? Well, you touched on one thing. It's depending on who you're giving advice to, you have to take their specific life circumstance into the advice you give them, right? But it's really interesting that I've experienced is once you, let's say you started at nothing and then you made it to the Ivy League, for example, that's a level of success where you now have a safety net that you could go on to take a jump into music. And you can take, it's similar to training or in my experience with athletics, if you have a safety net, your risk profile and the kind of risks that you have an appetite for go up. Um, so it's this really interesting process where even if you start with very little, build yourself something protective, and then you can take more risks and use that as a launching pad, right? The people who are Just, at the cutting edge, right? They're taking big risks because they can. Not be, if, if they fail miserably, your case, you had an Ivy League education, other people- Yeah, I could go get a job. Like it, might yeah, not exactly. be, it might not be my dream job and it might not be for as much money as I want, but I wasn't going to I'd be, you know, I had, I had enough of a network, I had enough opportunity that I always knew that I, you know, I would uh, have a comfortable, comfortable landing, even if I fell. Um, but I think you're absolutely right. And it's, again, just talking about like, even just visualizing an asset on a chart, you hear traders mm -hmm. talk about support and resistance, you know, yeah. like uh, Bitcoin had hit 20,000 dropped for years, mm -hmm. came back, couldn't kind of break it, fell, whatever. Finally, with power, broke through it. And then you view that level now as support rather than mm -hmm. resistance. Same thing with life, right? Mm -hmm. You get that degree, your support level rises and you don't generally drop down below that level again. And then you kind of uh, achieve something else that becomes 
less of a resistance. You push through it and it becomes support. And as you said, and then your ability to take risk is much higher because you've already established a certain level of, of, you know, whether it's, you just have made enough money that you have a two-year, you know, reserve fund in case you fail, you know, that your bills are covered for two years or whatever it is, or you have that degree that will get you a job when it won't get someone else a job if they fail. So yeah, mm-hmm. I, I think that's absolutely true. And you always hear the stories that entrepreneurs like, it's again, you're like, wow, he really nailed it. You know, you don't see the 30 things that he tried to do before that, that he mm-hmm. utterly failed at or treaded water. You know, um, you only see that success at the end, but that comes from all of that building over time. Yeah. Have you found when you were successful as a musician, were there other things that you were passionate about in your life that were, were they mutually reinforcing or were they like, I, I, I have a strong conviction that if you wanted to be very good in one domain and have a lot of confidence, it's to have other hobbies and be good at those hobbies simultaneously. And it's not that you, you have to devote all your time. It's just that, yeah, I think it's the psychological concept of here's another thing and it builds this way rather than this has to be the thing you're adding so much undue pressure. And in a lot of creative endeavors, you have to be relaxed and you have to be calm. So bringing all this stress to an added stress to perform and your livelihood, it doesn't serve the end result. I, I agree. I mean, I, I, like I said, I've, you know, I'm a, I'm a spastic ADHD case. I have a million interests. Um, everyone always sort of like, I'm moderately good at everything and like barely a master of anything. You kind of <laughs> Jack of all trades, master of none. Like yeah. I was always an athlete. I played uh, sports my entire life, um, you know, all the way up until college. Um, and I never gave that up. So I still love playing sports in whatever manifestation at whatever age that was, but it was something mm-hmm. I always, always did. Uh, mm-hmm. while I was DJing, even if, you know, I got, I became like pretty into CrossFit and stuff sort of over years, just because it was something that was different every single day and I could focus on and injure myself on a regular basis. Um, right. but, uh, but you know, it, yes, there's always, I always have something else that I'm doing, even if it's just like reading two or three good books at the same time while I'm doing this other activity or uh, teaching my kids to do something. But yeah, I mean, I'm like the hobbyist hobbyist. I go through these phases where, you know, I like every sport in my twenties, I was going to be a boxer. And in my, you know, it just, I was going to be a golfer. I was going to be a tennis player, every single thing. So I could just, I'm just not the personality. There are people I think who can be singularly focused on something Mm -hmm. and just do it all the time that no no not for me so like yeah it goes back to the same thing i couldn't stare at a screen all day and just stare at charts mm-hmm. no matter how passionate about it, i just can't and right. i think that it's important to have that balance yeah and to be self-aware to know what type you are right that's crucial yeah. um yeah well i guess what would you say to some young people who are trying to get into crypto for the first time or even traders or ideally the sweet spot of people who want to be crypto traders what is what's like a six way six month entry way into the career path don't for trading honestly like yeah um i would say that um first the first thing for any investor trader crypto or otherwise is that you need to have that sort of emergency fund before you start investing as mm-hmm. as a, as exciting as it is and the idea of investing like you don't want to be investing while you have credit card debt that's taking you know 20 20% interest on a monthly you need to get out of debt and you need to save a little money so that no matter what happens you're good for a few months that's my first piece of advice period for anyone mm-hmm. second if you want to get into crypto i would say you're not going to be a good trader um, unless you do it for years so i would say just dollar cost average into bitcoin mm-hmm. buy it slowly regardless of price, don't try to guess when it's up or when it's down. Like every Monday buy your fixed amount until after six months, you're at the amount that you were looking to invest, you know, because mm-hmm. um, you're just not going to be smarter than the market. You might get lucky, mm-hmm. but you know, dollar cost average. If that appeals to you and goes well, maybe start thinking about Ethereum, you know, start a position in Ethereum, do the same thing. And then from there, see how far down the rabbit hole you want to go. And if you want to take a tiny, tiny, tiny bit of your portfolio and start trying to trade it, you know, mm-hmm. um, it ain't glamorous. It's not sexy, but uh, that's what I would recommend. Personally. Yeah. 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 I think that's strong advice. We have a uh, pomp on later today. Do you have a strong opinion on the Bitcoin versus Ethereum debate? Yeah. I mean, I love pomp. 
we're friendly. Like yeah, I've had him on my podcast. We, you know, we, we interact a lot. Um, I'm not as far in the, the Bitcoin direction, I guess, as him. I don't see a reason why you can't just like both. Yeah. You know, I, and, and nothing that these guys say about Bitcoin is wrong. Mm-hmm. I just think that uh, it's not the end all be all, you know, and that uh, blockchain technology one way or another is that going to be the underlying tech and future of so many things. And that will not be Bitcoin, mm-hmm. right? Bitcoin yeah. is the greatest store of value ever invented. The digital gold narrative makes so much sense. It's the hardest money that has ever existed. But that doesn't mean that a million other applications of cryptocurrency won't be incredible and mm-hmm. even just profitable if you're a speculator. I think that, you know, I think that Bitcoin is money and Ethereum is a platform, mm-hmm. you know? And, and so I think there's incredible things being built on Ethereum. I think that, you know, decentralized finance, DeFi, as people have heard, is really the future of crypto. Some of that mm-hmm. will be built on Bitcoin, but Ethereum's leading that race. Um, so I think it's, for me, it's just kind of crazy not to be exposed to both. You know, um, like you could buy Amazon and, you know, you could also buy Tesla stock, you yeah, know, like right. they're completely different. So, you know, why not? And, and that's sort of how I view it. So, um, listen, if, if I knew that, you know, major regulation was coming, someone's going to stop, try to stop cryptocurrency, there was going to be a huge crackdown. And I felt that the entire community had to focus on one thing. To be successful, I'd say everybody focus on Bitcoin. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But I don't think that that's the nature of the beast. My largest position is Bitcoin. It always Mm -hmm. will be. But Mm -hmm. that doesn't mean that it should be your only position. Sure. That makes perfect sense. Well, sweet, Scott. I'm now mindful of your time. Is there anything you want to end (laughs) off with or anything you want to conclude with? Anything? What are you excited about for the next six months or something that first thing you think about when you get out of bed? Yeah. Literally everything. I mean, it. I feel, you know, maybe I'm nuts, but I feel like this is just the beginning. Mm -hmm. And if you've been here a while, you're just starting to see all of the narratives that everyone said we were crazy and insane for finally coming to fruition, seeing companies put part of their treasury into Bitcoin. And we're going to see, I guarantee, central banks starting to put money in Bitcoin, all these things that the, the lack of supply is going to be huge. I just think we're going to see prices skyrocket still. So I mean, I'm just excited to see that play out. I have supreme confidence that it will. I have a plan if it doesn't, but I, you mm-hmm. know, I have supreme confidence that it will. But then on the other side, as I touched on, all of this insane innovation, like I get really excited about these small projects, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but everything in DeFi, I mean, the, the ability to potentially have people, especially who are underbanked or unbanked in other parts of the world, be able to completely detach from legacy systems and and live their life only within you know decentralized finance the ability to earn yield like i'm getting 10% on my money mm-hmm. sitting doing nothing oh, wow. in crypto while other people's money is in the bank doing nothing just in mm-hmm. stable dollar coins that to me have no risk you know mm-hmm. uh, or very minimal I, just to see this innovation and all the things that are going to happen that are going to help people i'm just supremely excited about all of it. And I think most of that's going to happen in DeFi. Yeah. Do you have a time frame for when that could happen? You think five years or you said we're early. What is uh, I think, yeah. I think that, uh, I think we'll see huge innovation in 2021 in DeFi. And I think we'll start to see cracks in the foundations or we'll start to see more of legacy systems adopting ideas we're seeing in DeFi. We're already seeing, you know, Kraken became a bank in Wyoming, you know, they're a crypto exchange. OCC says that, uh, you know, you can custody crypto assets in, in banks now. They can use stable coins at banks now instead of using SWIFT transactions. So yeah, they're going to try to get their... Uh, their piece of it. But, you know, I think that we're just going to see a lot of the, the space sort of legitimize. And um, for a lot of people, it's going to be life changing because they're going to have a bank account that's not a bank account. They'll be able to transact it with someone and they'll be able to actually earn yield on the, their holdings, no matter, no matter how small. But I think, you know, I think we'll see an ETF this year. Mm-hmm. Um, Although people I know say three years, but I'm optimistic, you know, and so I think that that'll bring more institutional investment on one side. And then I think that'll bring more credibility to the space. And then I think that, you know, bring more eyes. And then I think DeFi is going to just absolutely explode. I'm really excited about NFTs too, which we touched on earlier, because I think we're going to, we've just touched the iceberg of their use cases. If you were an artist now, would you 
let, let's say you were 20 year old, I'm 29. If you were 20 now and crypto was where it was, the art scene was where it was, do you think you would be more interested in, in pursuing your art knowing the tech is going to leverage your arts career or would you be more interested in the tech to provide for other artists or somewhere in the middle? I think somewhere in the middle. Yeah. You know, I, I think it would be much, well, COVID aside, because mm-hmm. <laughs> it's really hard to be a DJ and a musician right now. Sure. But um, I think every year that passes, the tools for, you know, growing an audience and uh, taking control of your own career increase. So mm-hmm. like, I wish it would, you know, I wish I was 20 now for, for countless reasons beyond <laughs> right. uh, just, just that, just because that, you know, getting old, but, yeah. um, and, you know, I, I think a balance of both sort of, as you said, I think that I would use those tools myself, but also it would just be good for the community in general, because, you know, smaller artists would get heard, larger artists would not be abused as much. And I, I think that there would just be a much happier medium. Yeah, so I, final question is, do you think tech is empowering more artists then? And that's really the gratifying use of it? Or is it something where artists of the future are going to be more tech savvy just because they've grown up with it? And how will that impact their art? I, I think that the tech certainly empowers artists. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I was a kid, you had to go to like a record store and there was a limited amount of CDs that you could choose from because those are the ones who had a record label that had a good distribution deal who could get their CD and you would literally never hear any other music. Yep. If it wasn't played on the radio or you couldn't buy it at your local store, you would never hear it ever. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, then I went into, then I, I lived through tapes, you know, and like uh, mixtapes and trying to get your hands on those. But at the end of the day, you know, technology allows exposure. You know, like mm-hmm. SoundCloud was the biggest innovation in my mind in the history of music. Mm-hmm. You know, the ability for anyone to go on there, post music and have the potential to go viral and have people comment, you know, that really, I think, uh, broke the floodgates. And so I think that technology will just continue to enhance um, art for sure. Yeah, no, it's ex- definitely an exciting time. Well, hey, man, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It was a true pleasure. Thank you, man. I really do appreciate it. Awesome. Take care.